may be seated. So now I'm going to have you turn to another part of the Bible, to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Mark, the second book in the New Testament. And we're going to turn to, a, you know, just four little verses, Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29, if you can turn there. You know, I had the privilege a number of years ago, I was pastoring in the States and family uh, were attending our church, and this guy was a real thinker, and one day he introduced me to a theologian by the name of Helma Tillica, and gave me a box of old books, I mean, these are like classics, you know, and I, I've stored them away in my library, and so when I was studying this week, I, I discovered I had this book called The Waiting Father, Sermons on the Parables by Helma Tillica. You say, who is this guy? He was a German pastor that actually served a church in World War II. And because he wasn't really a political animal, he was allowed to continue to practice pastoring in this church. And as, you know, how many know that, you know, as the war changed and Germany was being bombed by the Allies? Could you imagine, you know, know, every night, you know, bombs are falling on your city. And so he had a congregation of about 4,000 people. And they were paying attention to what he had to say because when you know that life and death is on the line, all of a sudden you're living in a totally different environment. Can you believe that, right? That's amazing. And so anxiety was probably a significant element in their lives as a congregation. And so as he shares on the parable of the growing seed, he addressed the kind of anxiety that actually plagues people. And, you know, I think it's still applicable to our time right now. He says, with words of insight and reassurance, he wrote these words, one day perhaps... When we look back from God's throne, in other words, one day when we're in the presence of Almighty God, we're in heaven, we're living for eternity, and we look back, you know, we will say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the grave of my loved one, and everything at that moment seemed to have come to an end. If I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of war creeping upon us or was upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of an endless imprisonment or a malignant disease, if I had ever dreamed when God was only carrying carrying out his design and plan through all of these woes or troubles, that in the midst of my care and despair, his harvest was ripening and that everything was pressing on towards this last kingly day, If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident. Yes, then I would have been more cheerful and far more tranquil and composed through life. Isn't that trouble? Isn't that true? You know, if we could look at our trouble through a different lens than the current trouble, we would probably respond to our trouble differently. That's what uh, Tilika is pointing out to us. And if we want an illustration of how the certainty works out in human life, we have only to look at the Lord Jesus himself. Can you imagine the tremendous pressure there must have been in his life? You know, I'm I'm gonna just confide with you in the last month or two, I've had to reface a giant in my life. Something that I haven't experienced in years. And yet, over the pressures of leadership, not only about our church, but I'm also leading, you know, a whole bunch of churches in our country, and you know, the pressure eventually catches up to you over time. And I was beginning to feel a sense of anxiety. And I thought, you know, why is this happening to me, God? And, you know, as I've been walking through this moment in my life, I recognize that it's helping me to understand some things, refocus, and as I'm walking through and, you know, God is helping me, 
I realized, you know, sometimes we go through things, not just for ourselves, but also to help other people. And it was interesting as we come to this text that I realized that this text actually spoke into my soul this week and actually lifted me. And I'm going to pray today that it will lift your hearts, that it will encourage you as it has encouraged me. Can you imagine the tension and the sense of pressure Jesus must have felt? As a matter of fact, Manfred Hosman in an essay, One Must Keep Watch, says regarding the pressure that Jesus was carrying. He said he saw as no one ever saw with an infinite and awful nearness the agony of a dying man, the prisoner's torment, the anguish of the wounded conscience. He sees the injustice, the terror, the dread, the ungodliness. He sees and hears and feels all of this with the heart of a savior. In other words, God is not indifferent to our suffering as human beings. And this means that distress and misery are not merely noted and registered as if, you know, he's tabulating it in his machine, but rather it's impacting his soul. He's suffering in compassionate love as if this were happening to his own body and his own soul. Must not this fill every waking hour and rob him of sleep at night? Must he not begin immediately to set to fire, you know, to, the, to, the, to this idea of winning people, working out strategic plans to evangelize the world, to work, to work furiously, unceasingly, unrestingly before the night comes when no man can work? That was a word that Jesus himself said in John's gospel. That we would imagine the earthly life of the Son of God would be like if we were to think of him in human terms. In other words, when we consider all the things that he's dealing with, he feels all the things we're feeling. He's carrying this. Could you imagine the load of anxiety that would be upon him? And yet, how utterly differently is the life of Jesus Though the burden of the whole world lay heavy upon his shoulder, though suffering and sinning were going on all around him, this immeasurably miserable and wretched cry allowed for someone to help them. He has time to stop and talk to an individual. He associates with publicans, that's tax, you know, sinners, Lonely widows and despised prostitutes. He moves among the outcasts of society, wrestling for the soul of individuals. He appears not to be bothered at all by the fact that these are not strategically important people. They have no prominence. They're not key figures, but only the unfortunate lost children of the Father in heaven. Because Jesus knows that he must serve his neighbor, literally those that are the nearest to him, and can confidently leave to his Father in heaven the things, the furthest things away, the perspectives, the great challenges, by being obedient in his little corner of the highly provincial precincts of Galilee and Judea, he allows himself to be filled, fitted sorry, into a great mosaic whose master is God the Father. So how does Jesus handle the pain, the problems, the anxious elements of life? You know how he did it? He trusted his Father in heaven. And he did what was at hand in ministering to the needs of those around him. Now, Lloyd Ogilvie says this. This is probably one of the greatest tests to our faith, is this idea of anxiety. He says, anxiety is the result of doing our own thing on our own timing and with our own resources. Freedom from anxiety comes when we desire to do what God wants when he wants it with whom he wants it, and by his power. God's work done without God's power literally depletes us as his people. 
You know, how often we make terrible decisions in life. And I'll tell you what causes that. Because we feel anxious about a situation. We feel like we've got to do something. We've got to act, you know. This is a doing culture. How many figured that out? We're not, we're not reflective. We're doers. We get things done, man. And because of that, we make sometimes very terrible decisions because we lack the ability to exercise patience and to maintain confident trust that God is truly at work even when we don't see him doing anything. If you have moments you go, what's God doing? I don't see anything happening. We get frustrated by that. Well, there's a parable in Mark's gospel. He's the only one that teaches us this parable. I'm so glad for Mark. And maybe Mark, I was reading these commentators this week, maybe Mark added this parable because he identified with it. Because if you know his story, John Mark actually kind of messed up. He went out on a missionary trip with Paul and Barnabas and he kind of packed it in and you know, it caused a bit of a breach in Paul and Barnabas' relationship. Barnabas' uncle took him under his wing again. Eventually he ends up working with Peter and Paul again works with Paul. Paul later on says, you know, Mark's profitable to me. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him again. Peter tells his story in the Gospel of Mark you know, is written. So Mark leaves this little parable. He gives us this little parable in chapter four. And it reminds us of the seed that is growing. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached on the parable of the soil and the seeds. Remember that? And I talked about how you and I have to have the right kind of a heart attitude to receive the seed so it can grow in this fertile environment of confidence and faith in God. But I want you to know that this parable is teaching us that in spite of our efforts or lack of effort, God's purposes are still prevailing and God's purposes will prevail. He's working in our life. He's working in our city. He's working in our nation. He's working in our world. He's bringing everything to a, a culmination of human history. We're moving towards an end point. You know, life is not cyclical. It's actually linear. We're actually, it was a beginning of creation and beginning of human story and there's gonna come to an end when God is gonna actually address all of the things that we're doing on earth. We can be assured of that. So everything is moving towards this end and trusting childlike faith in God's goodness and mercy and his love replaces anxiety. Do you know that? Do you know what replaces anxiety? Trust. That's it, it's real simple. I trust God, I trust that he's good and I trust that he's loving and I trust that he's working. You better write that down. It's coming down to that. And all of us in this room are tempted not to trust God. We're all tempted to take things into our own hands. You know, let me ask you a question today. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? Well, pastor, I could be forgotten by other people. I could be rejected by people. I want you to be assured of this, that God our Father will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, people might, God will never, okay? That we will not have enough. Some people are worried, you know, when I get a little older, will I have enough to be, you know, to take care of our lives? That creates anxiety in people, you know? And I want you to hear the words of Jesus' beautiful prayer, and I want you to believe that what he's telling us to do. Listen to what he says. Give us this day our daily bread. But you know, we've been 
it's not wrong to plan, but I think we get so locked into the long-term plan that we can have anxiety for the moment. Do you believe that Jesus will provide your daily bread? You know, when we think of daily bread, you know that word bread was the sustenance of life. I want you to think of another word when you pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. I think what we're praying for there is God's grace. And grace is that which we don't deserve. Grace is that favor that God gives to us. Give me today, Father, the grace that I need to live today. And I'm gonna say this to you, that every trial and every trouble that comes into your life, I am so convinced that at that moment, God's grace will come and the grace will be sufficient to meet the need that you're faced with at that moment. You know, we worry, you know, well, if, if this happened, if I lost my beloved child, would I be able to handle that? Sometimes we, we take on needless worry. Isn't that true? We, can I handle this terrible, imagine the worst catastrophe possible for you, and then you say, I don't think I could ever handle that. Folks, whatever God allows to come into your life, he will give you the grace for that moment. He's not gonna give you the grace uh, today for what you need tomorrow. He's gonna give the grace the day you need it. Give us this day our daily bread. That we will die. Well, you know, some of us are worried about dying. But listen, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Do you know, think about it. You know what heaven's gonna be like? No more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more suffering. That's not too bad. I have to admit, you know, I have a little ritual at night. I don't tell everybody, but now that I'm going on it, I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> now you'll know what I'm like, you know. And I was a little child. I was taught this nice little prayer. And some of you probably pray it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Lord, I'm ready for you. I'm ready to see you. You know, I'm ready to go. And by the way, some nights you're going, this wouldn't be a bad option. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Uh, faith then is trusting in spite of all the evidence that suggests that God is not at work and he doesn't care about us. Because I think there's moments when we question, does, is God at work here or does God care about me? And I want to declare to you today that God is always at work and he always cares. So if something is not going the way we think it ought to, it's not because God's not working. But you and I have something powerful to learn. It's interesting when you contrast the life of David and Saul, you know, the two kings of Israel. The one is a picture of human approach to problems. The other is a picture of a man who trusts God. You know, Saul lost what God intended for him because of his fears, his anxieties, which led him toward making an impatient decision rather than obediently trusting in God's purposes. Saul took things into his own hands. He was constantly doing that. You know, when he felt, you know, threatened, crisis, pressure, he literally disobeyed God. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He was in a crisis. He waited the seven days set by Samuel. See, Samuel was God's spokesperson. It's, hey, wait for seven days. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Now Saul's in a bigger trouble. It says, so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering, and Saul offered him up, to, up the burnt offering. Doesn't that sound spiritual? He did a spiritual thing. 
But just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, said Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought. Boy, what a, there's the problem. I thought. Come on now, how many times is our biggest problem happening right between their two parts of our, you know, our ears, you know, right in between here, you know, there's a problem we're thinking, and sometimes our thinking is the wrong thinking. I thought, see, I thought things weren't going to work out. I was afraid. I, I was in crisis. I had to do something. Listen, God had already told him what he needed to do. He needed to patiently wait. How many know patiently waiting is not our strong suit for the most part? And especially in this culture today, microwave generation, we're having a hard time with that. He says, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt he was emotionally driven. He was thinking the wrong way, and then he made this emotional decision. He said, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Listen to what Samuel says. You acted foolishly. Now, he's not just saying you're stupid, you know, because that's how we would interpret the word foolish. But in the Old Testament, the word foolish has a deeper connotation than that. It's actually, you've, you acted sinfully. You acted without the fear of God. You acted without wisdom. You disobeyed what God had to say. Basically, it was Samuel saying, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Listen, his impatience cost him God's purposes for his life. In 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14, it goes on, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You know what triggered Saul's poor decision? Fear anxiety, lack of complete trust in God, all of the above. We're reminded from the book of Lamentations, the Lord is good to those whose hope or those who wait for him, to those who seek him. It's good to wait quietly or silently for the Lord to save or be victorious. It's good to do that, it says. You know, as we were looking through a few weeks ago, as I've already said, we're at this parable. I want to continue on. We're going to continue to look at this imagery of the seed, but in this parable of the growth of the seed, how God works in our lives as believers, what we discover is an amazing antidote to our anxiety and a deep reassurance of the amazing work of grace in our hearts. God is always at work. And even when we least expect it, we can be confident if God's word lives in us, then that word will develop in us. You know what Paul could say to the Philippians? You know, he says to them, listen, I am confident, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, why did Paul say that? I'm confident in you. I would say this to people, I'm confident that God's gonna do this in you. It's not so much that I'm confident in humanity, I'm confident in God. I'm confident in what God can do in the human heart. I'm confident that when God starts something in your life, God's gonna complete it in your life. If you and I open our hearts and let God's word fill our innermost being, we can be confident that the word of God, the seed, that incorruptible seed, is gonna do its purpose in our lives. 
And that should encourage us today. And we're going to see that in this parable. So, you know, I think there's two sides to the gospel work. But in that process, we're going to see the freedom that we can have from anxiety. So let's take a look at these elements of God's work. And the first one that leads to freedom from, that leads to freedom from anxiety is really what is our responsibility. I'm gonna to speak to, you know, some of us, you know, we can be non-responsible, we can take no responsibility. How many of us one extreme? Passivity is not part of what God is about. But you know, there's another side that we can be overly conscientious and think it all depends on us. And we can be full of anxiety. How many know that's the other extreme? So what's the right blend? What should we be doing? In other words, what's our responsibility? How do we see God's kingdom grow? What does God expect from us as his people? How how does God reach other people? Or better yet, how does God reach people through us? What is our part of the equation? Here in this parable, we're gonna see what God does. Look at verse 26 of Mark 4. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day. I love that, night and day. Notice how it starts at night. That's the Hebrew thinking, sunset to sundown. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. Well, I'm going to come back to that. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the sprouts, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Do you know what's interesting to consider? Who is the man in the parable? Is it Jesus? Or is it us, his servants? Or is it both? Or is it neither? You know what? One thing you need to know about parables, you can't explain every little detail of it completely. It's trying to make one main idea, one point. The focal point is not about the man. Does everybody see that? What's the focal point? The seed. The seed and what it does. That's the focal point. So after the man sows the seed. So is there a responsibility? Well, yes, there has to be because you know what? You could have the seed and you could put it in your pocket. What's going to happen if you put a seed in your pocket? Nothing. If you put, if you put a seed in a jar and you put it in a storage shed, what's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. It has to have certain elements to make that seed, you know, have its life-giving principle released, right? And so we, there's a responsibility. The man has to sow the seed. There has to be the sowing of seed. You know, in the, in the uh, ancient picture, you know, the man carried the seed in his hand. They had little... This is not highly mechanized farming, folks. This is like, you know, a couple of ruts in the ground and somebody's sprinkling seed by hand. Okay, that's the picture you need to have in mind. He's sowing the seed. And we got that from the parable ahead of time and seed lands all over the place. You know, the parable says that the man doesn't understand how the seed grows or how the kingdom of God works. That's basically what he's saying here. He said, uh, here, he says, he doesn't get it. He says, uh, he does not know how. He doesn't know how the seed is growing. It's happening all by itself. It's not, you know, the man itself isn't able to make it happen. How many go, that takes a little pressure off. I cannot make it happen. See, we're taught in our culture, if it's going to happen, you have to make it happen. How many, we're taught that all the time. Come on, isn't that true? Can I tell you that's not true? That's, that creates a lot of anxiety. It's like it all depends on me. If it, I don't do this part, it's not gonna happen. And we're taught that over and over and over again. 
Time and chance happens to them all. Some people are very successful in life. When you look at it, time and chance happen to them. They just got the right break at the right time. Come on now. We think, well, I was real smart. No, you were fortunate. God in his grace put you at the right place at the right time. You met the right people. You got the right connections. You got the right opportunity. Let's start thinking a little differently. That, that, that lowers a lot of pride real fast. Doesn't it not? God has blessed me. We should be talking like, you know what, I was fortunate. God was gracious to me. God gave me this opportunity. God made these provisions in my life. God gave me godly parents. God, the one that provided this in my life. I would not be here today if it was not the grace of Almighty God. We need to think differently. But it also releases us from a lot of anxiety because it's not totally dependent on us. So, you know, what's the point? It, the point is, is the seed is the picture of how God's kingdom grows. It points out the almost secret nature of that work of God's spirit in the human heart. It's how the church grows and develops, even though at times we wonder if anything's happening. How often we make judgments about ourselves and other people when we don't see a lot of things happening. We just assume nothing's happening. Isn't that true? I don't see anything happening. You know, I've prayed and prayed and prayed for my kids and nothing's happening. I've heard that comment. Nobody's saying amen now. It's not me, pastor. <laughs> Come on. I've heard this. I've been your pastor for 27 years. I've heard a lot of things. You can't get away with some things with me. I, I've heard these conversations, okay? We make judgments, but I want to declare to you today, God is at work. James Edward reveals the amazing nature of the seed and their growth. He said, a seed is not spectacular, nor does it laborious, laborious growth attract attention. How many know when you put it in the ground, we're not all standing over the ground going, hey, wow, woo, amazing, spectacular, dramatic. That's not how we talk, right? We just go, nothing, death. I don't see anything happening. Come on now. We know something's going to happen, but it just takes time, right? And we're not noted for our levels of high patience. Matter of fact, the seed is wholly unlike the worldly quest for power. Whereas Jotham's parable of the thorn bushes, Judges chapter 9, remember when there was raw ambition, secures a place for itself by violence and revolution. So, so many people feel like, if we're going to change the world, it's going to be by revolution. If we're going to change things, it's got to be, you know, powerful and dramatic and spectacular. And the kingdom of God is the exact opposite. It almost puts you to sleep. You know, in, in comparison, I mean, dig a hole, drop a seed, right? Then you wait. Then you wait. Then you wait some more, and then all of a sudden, boom, one day this little thing pops out of the ground, right? Then it starts to grow. Oh, look at that, it's growing. It's kind of fragile. We hope it makes it, right? Sure. How many know that this illustration doesn't leave a lot of room for selfish ambition in God's kingdom? How many can see that, you know, it's not, you know, we, got, we have the superstar mentality in our world today. And we're always looking at people like they're the ones that are producing these things. Time and chance happens to them all. And I just came to Red Deer at the right moment. When we came to start this church, it, wasn't, it was the right moment. It had nothing to do with me. It was other people. God had worked. He was preparing hearts. He was creating things. You know, the church just took off. I'm going, wow, look at this, you know. 
Now, did, did we work? Of course we worked. But it wasn't because we were so smart and we had our act together and we were so dynamic. No, it was the work of God and he was working. Listen, God's kingdom has a principle called life to it. Resurrection life. When I think of the word resurrection life, what do you think of? Something has to die before it comes alive again. Isn't that kind of the whole thing about the seed? It has to die and come to life again, you know? John says it this way in John chapter 12, verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It produces a plant that bears many seeds. Isn't that, you know what's hard about being a part of God's kingdom? You have to die to yourself. How many go, that's not fun. How many kind of discover this? It's the opposite of what we want. You know, we want to we be vibrant and vitalized and alive, and it's about us. And what you find out is it's not about us. You got to die to your dreams. You got to die, die, die. You know, and you go, ah, I hate this dying to myself nonsense. I hate having to, you know, give up my life. I hate to have to put other people ahead of me all the time. Come on now. Am I telling the truth? You know, and just when you go, I've been doing this for so long, Pastor, and then God goes, yeah, keep doing it. You're doing a good job. <laughs> When's the life principle going to kick in here, God? When am I going to get any credit? No. That's not going to happen that way. You're going to get to heaven, and then God's going to say, good job. Right? I've read the book. That's what it says. Right? The man who sows the seeds is anyone who's sharing God's word. The focus is not on the man, but on the seed and its life-giving properties. Having said that, it is critical we do right by the seed. We can't neglect the seed. Rather, we must sow it, and only the seed that is sown into the lives of other people will allow it to bring forth life. So we do have a responsibility. Notice I said you can't just be passive. You've got to be sowing the seed. That tells me I've got to be taking in the seed. I've got to be developing, I've got to be cultivating the seed in my own soul. I've got to be taking in the seed of God's word. I've got to be cultivating that seed. I've got to be sowing that seed out. And then, only then, can I expect a harvest. How many know? Mel's a farmer. Mel, you've got to sow seed if you're going to get a harvest. Isn't that true? I mean, if you don't put the seed in the ground, that's going to happen. You can look there all fall long and go, wow, look at that field. Nothing's happening. You've got to put the seed in the ground. Right? Come on now. We've got to sow the seed. You say, but I'm tired of sowing seed, Pastor. All I ever do is sow seed, sow seed, sow seed. Hey, I'll tell you, after a while, something's going to hit there. You're going you're to eventually seed. Seed's going to find the right soil. Eventually, you're going to have fertilizer. Something's going to happen. Germination. There's going to be life. Plants are going to start growing. And then one day, you're going to go, wow, you know what? I did a little, and we're getting a lot more out of it than what I sowed into it. That's true. Here's the confidence that we can have in God's word when it is sowed into our lives and into the lives of others. Listen to what Isaiah 55, I love this verse. This is the preacher's favorite verse. Verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. Does rain and snow come down from heaven? Okay. And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. This is the natural analogy of how life works, right? Right? Now, verse 11, this is one I like. 
So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose to which I have sent it. Yes! Hey, all I got to do is just keep preaching, sending out the sowing, 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 and then eventually, harvest time. It's going to happen. Let me move on to the second element in God's work that leads to freedom from anxiety. It's the divine aspect. So the human aspect, this is a real simple message. Point number one, I got to sow seed. How many got that? Everybody get it? I got to sow seed in my own soul. I got to sow seed in the souls of others. I got to sow seed, all right? Point number two, a real simple sermon. You're going to remember this. What does God do? He's the active agent in advancing his kingdom. He uses the seed that's been sown But it's less dependent on us than we can imagine. I thank God and I take great comfort in that. Listen, James Edwards says, despite the farmer's absence and ignorance, however the soil brings forth all by itself. It says, you know the Greek word there is autome. We get the word automatically. How many appreciate that you you have an automatic dishwasher at home, you know? You put the soap in, you hit start, close the door, and it automatically cleans the dishes. Yay! Some of you go, I'm the automatic dishwasher pastor. (laughs) Yeah, you could be. I've done a lot of dishes in my time. Believe me, I've done a lot of dishes. But you know what? It's nice to have an automatic. It's nice to see it done automatically. I like that. I open it up. Look at this. Clean dishes. Yay! Some of you go, that's not always been my experience, pastor, opening up the door. But that's okay. (laughs) Alec. Alan Culpepper says, the Greek term autome is used for something that happens without visible cause, in other words, by itself. James Edwards says, so we have a dramatic contrast between a sleeping farmer and a sprouting seed. I like that. What's the farmer doing? He's sleeping while the crop is growing. Because, you know, once you've got the seed in the soil, there's not a lot you can do. You can, well, I have to weed the garden. Well, that's that's probably right. You know, we could talk about you need certain things to make things grow. But really, it gets down to that seed's got to grow. When we look at the Jewish expectation regarding God's kingdom, we'll see that they had a lot of impatience in their day. Do you know that? You had zealots. They were going to bring the kingdom of God in by violence. Then you had the, the people that were the apocalyptic people. You know, they were the ones that were observing all of the signs, you know, like the Essenes that went out in the desert and they're writing about the sons of light and the sons of darkness. They're trying to figure out how the end's going to come. You know, they're, they're the ones that are, you know, thinking that by somehow understanding the times, they're going to usher in the kingdom. You know, we got people like that today in the kingdom of God. You know, they've got it all figured out. They've got maps and charts and how Jesus is going to come back. Don't you guys read books like that? Some people are really into that, you know. No, there's always been people like that. And then you got, you know, uh, the Pharisees, they believed that, you know, if we could just carefully observe the law, you know, that everything, you know, we're going to, you know, because of our behavior, we're, we're doing it. But the parable of the growing seed warns against wedding the coming of the kingdom to forecasts, projections, timetables, and strategies. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus kind of cuts all attempts to capture them in categories, formulas, and agendas. Like the patient farmer, Jesus is supremely confident in the coming kingdom. Though beset by opposition from religious leaders and misunderstanding from followers, Jesus is not disheartened, he's not distraught, he's not desperate. And nor should there be anxiety within us. The faith that Jesus requires of his disciples is to sleep and rise in humble confidence 
that God has invaded this troubled world, not with a crusade, but with a seed. It's like, how many know what a fifth column is? How many know what that is? How many went to school? Did you guys go to school? Did they teach this, fifth columns? You know what that is? I'll explain it to you. That's when a nation has traitors in their own midst, and when an invading army comes in, some of the people rise up to help the invaders. That's called a fifth column. Okay? You just learned something. See, I went to school. <laughs> All right. Okay, so he invades. God has a fifth column. When he invades the planet, he has a plan, and it's the seed principle. He knows the seed's gonna bring life. He knows it's gonna quietly rise up. He knows it's gonna work out in the end. God knows it's gonna happen. God, he who begins this work knows it's gonna be completed. Isn't that a great assurance? How many are getting a little more comforted? You know, God's, if God's seed is in you, it's gonna grow. It's gonna bear fruit. I love this. I love this. Sometimes we don't understand how God works in changing us. And even if, but you know, a lot of times I don't understand things about how the wind comes. I see its effects, but I don't understand it all. We see that spiritual growth is usually gradual growth. That's, that's hard for us, you know, because we want spectacular. We want dramatic, right? And then we look at our life and go, am I even growing? Right? How many, can, you know, you, sometimes you go, I don't even know if I'm growing sometimes. You know, you wonder. You know what's really interesting? When you live with children every single day, you don't really notice they're growing. But, you know, everyone comes, you know, they haven't seen them for a month or a year, and they go, whoa, look how much you've grown. And you look at them going, yeah, I'm with them every day. I don't really kind of notice it, you know, until it's time to buy clothes. You know, did I shrink this stuff? No, they grew, right? What am I saying? There's a principle at work in our lives. It's so exciting, it says, all by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. Even as the miracle of growth is seen in nature, so it is seen in the realm of God's grace in the human heart. We can expect that we will produce the fruit that God is looking for from our lives. I love what Matthew Henry says. The work of grace is small in its beginnings, but comes to be great and considerable at last. As a matter of fact, the next parable, which I'm not even going to preach on because I think it relates to the same idea. He says the seed is, kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed. It's not like, you know, the mustard seed in that day was noted as the smallest seed. It's not technically the smallest seed, but it was proverbial language to say that small is a mustard seed. So Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, though it starts seemingly insignificant and small. How many know that the kingdom of God first planted by Jesus 2,000 years ago is pretty significant today when the majority of people in the world say that they're Christians? That's significant, folks. I would say significant growth. So you say, you know, so what difference does all this, this understanding make in our lives? You could ask the question, so what? I got three answers to your so what. First of all, this is what we learn about God's kingdom. Number one, that we need to learn to worry less and trust God more. That our timetable and God's are different and it doesn't depend solely upon me or you, which often creates anxiety within us, lesson number one. 
Everyone take a deep collective sigh. It's not depending on me. How many go, good, thank God, right? Isn't that wonderful? He who began will complete. It's not just depending on you. Yes, we have a responsibility, but we need to relax a bit about it because we know ultimately it's God that's going to do it. Okay, number two, we need to have confidence that God is at work in situations that appear hopeless or where we don't see anything happening. Remember the seed, it's in the ground. And so when we talk about God's work within and through us in this parable of the growing seed, we can rejoice that what God has implanted within us will cause us to grow. How many say thank God for that? Isn't that good news? That is going to grow within you. Though it starts slowly, almost imperceptibly at first, is going to produce significant fruit down the road. Now here's the third one. What we sow into the lives of others will produce life and amazing fruit even though we may not see it now. You know, I don't know how many parents, this is, and grandparents, were freaked out about people around us, right? I don't see anything happening in their life. I wonder what's going on. I'm concerned about them. How many people, come on, let's be honest, you're concerned about your kids and grandkids. Raise your hand, come on, raise your hand. Oh, all these honest people now, it's very good. It's good to be honest in church, right? Okay, so now we're being honest about it. You know what I'm going to tell you? Did you sow the seed? Did you sow the seed? Okay, then you've got to trust the seed. You've got to trust the seed. Well, pastor, you should see what they're doing. I don't really care what they're doing. The seed is in there. How many have, how many have been marveled ever? How many have ever seen how grass can push through concrete? Anybody ever seen that? Doesn't that irritate you? Especially when it's your concrete and you want the place to look nice. You got grass growing up, you know, between the concrete. You go, how in the world did that happen? Do you know what that tells me? Life is so strong that grass can beat out concrete. It's a principle of life. Life triumphs and trumps death. Life trumps death. You go, Pastor, all I see is the brokenness in their life. All I see is the disobedience in their life. All I see is the sinfulness in their life. But if the seed is in there... It's going to triumph over the sin that you're seeing. Hallelujah. How many go, Pastor, my anxiety levels have just gone down big time. Anybody's anxiety levels going down today? Good. You need to hear this because we're stressing. You know, what's my part? Listen to John 15, 4. I'm closing. He says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What is he saying? We just need to rest in Christ. No, we need to abide in Christ. That's an active thing, by the way. It's not passive. I'm in Christ, but I'm, re- I'm, I'm focused on Christ. I know that there's power in Christ. I know there's power in God's word. My hope and faith is built on what God has said, but that word is life-giving. And you know what? I don't care what I see around me. I don't care what the circumstances say. I'm not moved by those things. I'm gonna be moved by what God's word says because that has a life principle to it that overcomes death. Just like that. 
Let me close with an excerpt from a letter by C.S. Lewis. He's addressing the concerns of our world's troubles. I like Lewis. He says it this way. Tomorrow, he's speaking of Easter, we're going to celebrate the glorious resurrection of Christ. Away with tears and fears and troubles. Unite in wedlock with the eternal Godhead itself. Our nature ascends into the heaven of heavens. So it would be impious to call ourselves miserable. On the contrary, man is a creature whom the angels were they capable of envy would envy. Let us lift up our hearts and at some future time, perhaps even these things, these troubles, will be a joy to recall. How can we do that? Because we get our eyes off our troubles. We get our eyes off our problems. Folks, you'll always have trouble. You'll always have problems. Jesus said, in the world you're gonna have trouble. But he said, be of good cheer. He said, cheer up. Why? I've overcome the world. And if you've got this life principle living inside of you, it's gonna triumph over every trouble, every problem, every fear, every anxiety, every difficulty. It's gonna trump them. It's gonna triumph over them. So let us put our faith in God today. Let us put our trust in him today and allow our fears and anxieties to flee. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. I don't know, as I was meditating on these thoughts, my heart leapt. I rejoiced (coughs) when I was reminded that there's such a great principle of life at work within us. You know what? It doesn't matter what people say about you, think about you, do to you, right? If God be for us, who can be against us? If I've put my trust in God, is he for me? Absolutely. So I'm going to trust him. So let me pray with every head bowed. How many anxious hearts are here today? Just raise your hand. All the anxious hearts, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you today. I got my hands up. You know, pastor is processing this stuff in his own life. You know, I've had moments I've been totally free from anxiety. Because you know, I read Philippians 4, it says, you know, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Do not let your hearts be anxious. Don't let it remain there. There'll be moments. You will be tested. You know, different seasons of life will come. Different challenges will come before you. You'll experience this giant call anxiety. But there's a peace that passes human understanding. And it always comes back when we get our focus in the right spot. Isn't it true? God is at work today. He's at work in you. He's at work in your children's life. He's at work in your grandkids. He's at work in your neighbor's life. God is at work even when you don't see it. He's at work when you think, is there anything happening? It's slow and it's gradual, but it's powerful. It will triumph over every challenge that your life is faced with today. There is such a life-giving power that seed, that word, that person of Jesus, that seed dwelling inside of you growing and developing. Just commit ourselves to God. Maybe you don't know Jesus today. Listen to me. Just standing where you're at, you just say, I want to know you, Jesus. I want to know all about you. I want to know your kingdom. I want the seed, this word, your presence to invade my life. I want you to remove 
all of my sin and shame. I, I pray that you would deliver me from anxiety, even as the pastor was talking today. What he is sharing, this is the truth, folks. I'm teaching you the truth today. This is life-changing and life-giving. And my prayer today was that people would come all across our city battling anxiety that would come here today and hear words of peace, words of hope, words of joy, words of life. This is words of life. So Father, we pray today that these words that you have now sent out, I have sowed them into the hearts of the hearers, that these seeds would fall on the fertile soil of our heart, that we would receive it by the gift of faith, that we would embrace it, that it would produce life within us, oh God. It would destroy the anxious thoughts, oh God. It would destroy the fears, oh God. It would help us to learn to rest like we've never rested before, but Lord, it would also motivate us to serve in a way we've never served before, that we would begin to realize the power of the seed of your word, Father, that we would be quick, Lord, to speak your word, knowing it has a life-giving power that can shatter the places of darkness inside of the human heart and mind, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.